And as usual, a big thanks to the breakfast team, but now it's time for something a little special. In fact, something you haven't heard on 2SER at all this year. Now, I'm not talking about the John Howard Appreciation Hour, but rather the new and improved 2SER Science Show. We've even picked ourselves a litigation-free name, so stick around for everything you wanted to know about science, but couldn't be bothered to ask here on Diffusion. Yes, that's right. It's finally here. We've finally found a name for our show that hopefully won't land us in court. We're now called Diffusion, and the other good news is we don't have to throw away our monogrammed bathrobes either. But coming up in this week's momentous show, we'll be finding out if your semen is worth a fortune and the technology behind remote control sharks. But as always, before we can get to any of that, here's all the science news that's fit to broadcast and possibly some that's not with Jackie Hayes. A study on mice has shown that depression can be caused by signal molecules which turn off particular genes in parts of the brain. Existing antidepressants activate compensatory mechanisms which temporarily restores the animal's protein expression without targeting these silencer molecules. The effects of these genes being turned off are much more long-lived than the effects of the antidepressants and may explain why depression is often recurrent and difficult to cure. Researchers from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center exposed mice to aggression by a different dominant mouse daily for 10 days. After this time, the mouse would become socially defeated. They socially avoided mice, other mice for several weeks. In, the mice, um, in these mice, the expression of the gene for brain-derived nootropic factor, or BDNF, was reduced threefold and remained suppressed for several weeks. Genes are turned on or off by other proteins called histones. What the researchers found was that in these socially defeated mice, silencer molecules actually attached themselves to the histones that would otherwise activate the BDNF gene. Antidepressants only overcome the histones temporarily and they don't treat those silencer molecules. This controversial research may call into question the recently approved skin patch treatments for depression that were just approved in the United States. Nothing can escape from black holes, right? Right? Wrong. And a physicist from MIT, Seth Lloyd, has just produced some calculations in which he claims to show that quantum information can escape black holes. In 1973, Stephen Hawking showed that black holes actually radiate energy, and ever since then, people have been wondering whether that radiation is meaningless radiation or whether it has been something else. The idea that quantum information could escape had pretty much been rejected in the 1980s, but Lloyd insists that his calculation, in his calculation it's entirely possible that the quantum information inside the black hole can entangle itself with the Hawking radiation, As the black hole evaporates, the information is mostly preserved in the radiation. An average of half a bit of information is lost, no matter how many bits escape the black hole. 
New research from the University of California suggests there may be a link between the genetics of a mother and the sexual orientation of her son. Scientists have found almost to a quarter of mothers with more than one gay son process their X chromosomes in a highly unusual way. Females have two X chromosomes, but only one is required for normal cell operation. Thus, one X chromosome is routinely inactivated. Usually this is done at random, so if you took a portion of body tissue from a woman, you would expect to see about half the cells inactivate one X chromosome, while the other half of the cells inactivate the other X chromosome. The study looked at 200 mothers and found that 25% of mothers with homosexual children had inactivated the same X chromosome in every single cell. Only 4% of mothers with heterosexual children routinely inactivated the same X chromosome. This research reignites the old disputes about sociobiology as scientists have been looking for a genetic cause of sexual orientation for decades. This study may be particularly sensitive as inactivating one X chromosome has long been associated with major genetic irregularities. However, the head of the research team from the University of California says that these kind of fears should not stand in the way of legitimate scientific research. He claims he's merely trying to understand the most fundamental human trait, the ability to love and to be attracted to others. Ah, Throw away your magazines. Burn all of your books. Electronic paper is on the way. An international team of researchers has developed a new process to make a flexible and conducting nanostructured film, which they've dubbed nanoskins. These nanoskins are made from carbon nanotubes embedded in a soft polymer matrix, which allows them to be strong, structured and flexible. In order for a material to produce a high-resolution electronic display, the electrons need to be easily pulled out from the surface when a voltage is applied. This is called field emission. The nanoskins that have just been produced are excellent field emitters when compared against the other best values obtained from around the world. The nanoskins maintain these properties even when it's bent or rolled up like a scroll. Professor Ejian from the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute claims it's the most ideal material for electronic paper. Ejian is also part of a team that has been trying to mimic gecko feet for several years. They recently reported a process for creating artificial gecko feet with 200 times the sticking power of the real thing by using nanotubes to imitate the thousands of microscopic hairs on the gecko's foot pad. As well as electronic paper, the researchers are looking to use these new materials to build miniature pressure sensors, gas detectors and connections for electronics. Semen is a mind-altering blend of hormonal tricks worth a fortune to the pharmaceutical industry. Far from just a fluid to carry sperm, research is showing that semen is brimming with possibilities. Ian Wolfe explains. In studies at the State University of New York, Professor Gordon Gallup, Dr. Rebecca Birch and Dr. Stephen Playtech found that women who had unprotected sex with men had significantly lower depression scores and enjoyed better concentration and decision-making. They compared the symptoms of depression in a thousand women and asked questions to rule out social factors, such as whether they were in a committed relationship and other factors such as whether they could have been affected by the hormones in the contraceptive pill. 
the only statistically significant difference was whether or not they'd been exposed to semen. Lesbian celibate women had the same depression scores. When a relationship ended and bad feelings are expected, the women not exposed to semen actually had lower depression scores. The condoms protected them. The women who didn't use condoms suffered more depression than the women who did use condoms and started new sexual relationships more quickly. It looks like they suffered withdrawal and were motivated to get a new fix. When all the other social factors amongst the thousand women were taken into account, the absorption of semen was the only statistically significant difference between the two groups. In the gay men surveyed, the condom users still swallowed semen, so they weren't able to see any differences in depression. Why not use straight men as the control? Professor Gallup said that the experiences that can affect clinical depression, such as lifestyle, medication and AIDS, are too different between homosexual and heterosexual men to allow direct comparison. How can this be happening? Professor Gallup has compiled a list of psychoactive compounds in semen that provide some answers. Some 80% of semen is made up of the amino acid alarginine. Amino acids are the building blocks of proteins. Alarginine is found in all protein foods. The powder is sold in health food shops with a promise it will build muscle tone and burn fat fast. It increases blood flow and soothes pain. Semen also contains the amino acid tyrosine, first discovered in cheese. Tyrosine is converted by the body into adrenaline and noradrenaline, which arouses you to fight or flight, and dopamine, which your brain uses to reward you with a warm inner glow when you're satisfied. Semen contains the male hormone testosterone, which in men and women lifts libido, energy and immune function. It also protects against osteoporosis. Strangely, semen is also laced with female hormones. Semen contains estrogen and estrone, used to regulate the menstrual cycle and pregnancy, follicle-stimulating hormone, and luteinizing hormone, which start ovulation and sexual arousal, thyrotropin-releasing hormone and prolactin, which cause milk production. These hormones also make you feel happier. Semen contains beta-endorphin, enkephalin, and transcortin opioids, which work in the brain to kill pain and lower anxiety. Bizarrely, semen contains the hormone oxytocin, which was used in recent psychological experiments. People who sniffed oxytocin trusted strangers in an investment game more quickly than untreated people. Oxytocin induces labour contractions and breastfeeding. It's involved in orgasms, as well as in pair bonding, maternal behaviour, and the formation of trust between people. Some studies also tie it to the way the brain deals with addiction and withdrawal. It seems that while these chemicals in semen lower anxiety, lift your mood and give you a warm inner glow, withdrawal is a bitch. Using condoms might not protect just against the pain of unwanted pregnancy and sexually transmitted diseases, but they may also blunt the pain of a broken heart. And that was Ian Wolfe with news of the addictive pleasures of men.
And after a feature like that, what else could we have played but Glenn Miller with In The Mood? And I'm sorry, I'm going to have to interrupt everything and insist we have question time on this. There's always time for questions. Because so many have come into my mind. And I think the... The first one is, how on earth did they measure the happiness of these women? What? Well, they use the standard way you always use. They use the Beck Depression Inventory list of questions. So there's no happy meter like the like a clapper meter you see on the Not the quite, show. not quite. This is a list of questions that ask you how you've been feeling in the last few weeks, how you feel about yourself, so it's sort of self-image, self-esteem, self-esteem um, about your social network, and all sorts of things that sort of give them an indication about um, how depressed you might be or how happy you are in your life. Okay. Um, one of the other ones that uh, obviously obviously everyone would think of out there, um, the, <laughs> the vagina should be protecting uh, women from things like infection, microbes, viruses, all that sort of stuff. How is this semen getting into like the bloodstream of the women? Well... They've managed to find that about two hours after unprotected intercourse, they can find compounds from semen in a woman's bloodstream. And what seems to be happening is a lot of these are hormones, and the hormones just get absorbed through the walls of the vagina and go straight into the bloodstream. Are they really small? They're they're small molecules. I mean, these aren't um, cells. These aren't like microbes. It's chemistry. It's basic body chemistry. And maybe there's an evolutionary advantage for women to absorb Hormones. I mean, after all, there's things like um, hormonal patches. There's a contraceptive patch. And so it, it's a regular thing for hormones to absorb through skin. You said they last uh, two... After two hours, you can find them in the bloodstream. Do you know how... Like, what the longest time after intercourse they're still found in the bloodstream? I don't know that one. Okay. So how, how long do you make them happy for, I suppose, is the, is the yes, question? Yes, I don't know that one. It's, and that's also, I guess, um, how long before withdrawal sets in. So you can so you can come down off it, can you? <laughs> well, that was what they found that women who broke up with men who weren't having, sorry, were, men, women who had used condoms and then broke up were less unhappy than women who didn't use condoms and were exposed to semen and broke up. So you expect them to be unhappy because they've broken up in their relationship, but the women exposed to semen who were no longer exposed to semen were much unhappier, measurably so. So it's like they. They had withdrawal symptoms. So maybe they should have come up with some sort of commercialization or breakup pill. I think if they put a lot of these, if they put all these things, oxytocin and these other hormones together in a pill, they might well find that it helps depression or it might work as a breakup pill hmm. um, to, to let you cope with all the brain chemistry that happens for a breakup. Uh, the other thing is with L-arginine, which is 80% of semen, uh, it is being sold as a sexual arousal product because it increases blood flow and soothes pain, and it's also being used as a painkilling cream. Ooh. Uh, they've add, added uh, chili as a spice for that, and the chili is supposed to overload the pain nerves so that you've got the gate control theory of pain. You wouldn't want to get those two mixed up. <laughs> no. Uh, you also mentioned um, oxytocin yes. is in semen, and my knowledge of oxytocin was that during an orgasm or during sexual intercourse, oxytocin is actually released by the brain and sends out happy, hair-bonded signals. That's right. Oxytocin is a brain chemical. Mm -hmm. It's a neurotransmitter. So it's very interesting that there are neurotransmitters in semen that make you form a pair bond. Would there be any reason for them to be there otherwise? Like... There's 
as far as I know, it affects the brain. So it helps a pair bond. You have sex with someone, you feel good about them, you want to stay around them, you trust them, you form a relationship. Is there any way that, um, like, back to the commercialization of a pill and a breakup pill, is there any way that it actually needs to uh, exist at the same time as an orgasm and, like, interact with the hormones that are released by the brain? Well, I think the idea is that since it, it gets released into the bloodstream and stays around for a couple of hours afterwards, that women feel good quite a while afterwards and that's associated with, with, with sexual act. And plus, of course, they get it again the next time. So mm. it, it's they get the new fix. I'm all out of questions, but I'm fascinated by the topic as a whole. It's a scientific fact. A scientific fact. It has to be correct. It has to be exact. Because it is, because it is a scientific fact. Well, when you're a little kid, who doesn't want remote control toys? Well, apparently the guys at the Pentagon haven't grown up yet because they've got, they're building their own remote control toys, except they're building them out of animals. The latest addition is sharks. The Pentagon's building remote control sharks, and they're doing this for a number of reasons. One of them is to uh, to monitor whatever the sharks are swimming through. Um, they can they're looking at um, changing where the sharks can go um, using implants in their brains. What what part of the brain would you implant? Well, they're they're looking at. Um, I think they, what they actually do is they have a uh, an implant on each side of the brain. And so like a primitive remote control toy where the one of those ones where you're, um, or I suppose just like the ones they have today, like with a servo in your remote control and you have the, the little lever, if you want it to go left, you push it left. And what they do is they have electrodes on the left-hand side of the, the shark's brain and the right-hand side of the shark's brain, in particular in the area where they sense their smell. It was, uh, it was long thought, actually, that sharks, 70% of a shark's brain was dedicated to smell. Is that why they chose smell, do you think? Yes, well, it's definitely because sharks don't have very good eyesight. I think some sharks can only see like around about five meters or less, um, and especially depending on uh, the the visibility in the water. As any any diver knows, sometimes you get five meters, sometimes you get forty meters. Um, so they've evolved that their um, their sense of smell is their main um, is their main sense, and so it's the largest part of their brain is dedicated to uh, their sense of smell. So that's why it's the most sensitive. And so that's why the Pentagon guys have chosen to stick these implants in um, the left and right-hand sides of the brain that are dedicated to the sense of smell. Well, I'll confess that when I heard you were doing a story about sharks, I went and I did a, I did a little bit of research myself mm-hmm. on the old fellas. And um, actually, South Australia and South Africa, with their white shark attacks, have come up with some recent research that um, sharks actually will move through their environment in predictable patterns. So, for example, if they do get a sense from one side, they will swim in that direction, mm-hmm. and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so perhaps the reason is that the shark can't, um, like, overwrite a, That's a right. sense or something. What they're doing when they're actually activating that part of the brain, they're actually making the shark think that there is something there that smells good, like half a litre of blood or whatever, and so it goes off in that direction. So that's how they steer it, by um, not like direct muscle control or anything like that. They just make it think that something that it might like is over there, and so they toddle off in that direction. 
Sounds a little bit like the remote control cockroaches. Yes, it is a little bit like remote control cockroaches. Electrodes on the antenna where they went into the brain. Mm. Right, and actually, sharks, um, sharks' brains were for a long time thought to be quite small. I think. Have you heard this room before that they're just very small brains? Well, a lot of sharks? prehistoric animals, like dinosaurs, and sharks have been around since the dinosaurs, or very yes. close to. Right, but sharks they have, have their their brains are sixty centimeters long so they're not Some. small at all for, for white sharks which mm. I, I did my research on but um the reason why brains uh why sharks brains were considered to be very very small was one of the very first scientific studies that was done on sharks brains was done on um a shark that had been evolutionarily conservative so hasn't you know evolved very much since the prehistoric time Right. So similar genes, still small. And what they did was cut the spinal cord of the shark and saw that it actually continued to swim, despite the fact that the brain wasn't controlling it. So it could still swim through the water. Distributed intelligence. Yeah. But then again, here's a way to uh, get the Pentagon's remote-controlled sharks and sabotage them. Yes. How's that? By cutting the spinal cord. But they still go. Right, but not in the direction that, like, towards the <laughs> pint of blood that Matthew's put out there. But what if they're using them with a, um, uh, like, a ton of TNT strapped to their back or something like that? <laughs> Suicide sharks. So then they're totally un- out of control with a with a ton of TNT on their back. They're going to put a ton of TNT on them? No, oh, whatever. Whatever. Whatever it takes to blow up, whatever they need to blow up. <laughs> if that's what they're trying to do. So we need to be afraid of sharks now. But and have, has, anyone, has, well, now, has, anyone, yes. has anyone ever actually done this before on animals? Or? Well, yes, well, there's... Not so much with um, remote control on the like the higher level of animals, like there's Ian was saying we had remote control cockroaches, but um, they've used them with training, like basic training techniques. Like they've used dolph- dolphins, um, trained dolphins have been in the military for a long time. They're, they're they arm the, the dolphins. They're in the they're in the Persian Gulf right now doing uh, mine clearing operations and dolphins like. in the Persian Gulf doing, doing mine, mine clearing. clearing. Are you sure? Yeah. Okay. They've, they've been there since the, since the first Gulf War. Right. They've been using them for mine clearance, and they've they've trained them. They put the special um, mine detection software on there, and the, and the dolphins pick up the the mines with their with their sonar, and they recognise it for what it is, and then they alert the um, their handlers. This sort of remote control is also being used on people. Uh, is a story I did earlier, well, later last year. Um, so yeah, you get your joystick out and just say which direction you want people to go, and they they go that mm. direction. But this idea has been around since. Um, well, it's been around since the uh, the early 20th century where the Bavaria actually had a massive fleet of pigeons. And pigeons. They, they sent them over Europe with um, little cameras attached to their feet. To their feet? <laughs> little, little, they worked out how to have little time delay, time delay cameras. How long ago and was this? In the, um, the beginning of the 20th century. So these would have been uh, film cameras, not, not Yes, not that's right. Not, not talking about, yeah, that's right, not... Not um, mobile phones with cameras on them, no. So they would have had to collect the film afterwards? Yes, they would, but they... And but were they looking for something in particular? No, that was... No, all this is in the, um, the early days, just before when uh, World War One starts to starts to simmer. Um, so they're taking um, pictures of Europe to see what um, what's going to be ahead of them when they're, when they're storming across to France. Did they give up on the pigeons? No, they didn't. So they're still doing it? No, they're not still doing it because you, it's far more efficient to use um, one of these drones at the uh, oh, satellites. That's right. But but then in World War Two, the British actually used um, pigeons very effectively, um, and they even thought about using pigeons in biological warfare. They had their pigeons trained so well 
that they could put them, they could make them home in on just about any point. Any they, statue you want. Any point that they wanted. And what they had, they had an idea of putting a, um, uh, a little, like a couple of ounces of explosives and sending like a flock of like a thousand pigeons and say, go home in on that airfield. And all the pigeons land on the hangar in the airfield and it gets blown up. Critical mass. And all well, that's that. And they were thinking about, um, oh, why don't we throw some plague in there as well, just for good measure? Because Europe oh, needs another plague. Maybe but then that they, was the start of the bird flu as well. <laughs> no, but they, they never used it. They said, Could oh, be. no, we're, we're not interested in that. We'll that's go what and, they say. We'll go and develop jet engines instead. And sadly, that's all we have time for in this edition, in this edition of Diffusion. Warming the seats on this week's show were Jackie Hayes and Ian Wolfe. If you'd like any information on any of the topics we doubled in this week, you can still email us here at discovery at 2SER.com until we get our new email address sorted. Diffusion was produced by myself this week in the tropical studios of 2SER Sydney and is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I've been Matthew Clark, and I hope to see you back here next week for another round of science news and views on Diffusion.